Welcome to the Rugged Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Putnam, and we're talking to men who, in the face of every adversity, have chosen to take destiny by the balls and create a legacy all of their own. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Rugged Legacy Podcast. I'm joined today by agents Javier Pena and Steve Murphy, both retired of the DEA. And if you haven't heard of them, you've been living under a rock. These two gentlemen were instrumental in taking down the world's first narco-terrorist, Pablo Escobar. And you've probably seen or heard of them on Netflix. So, Steve, Javi, thanks for coming to the show. Jeff, thanks for having us on the show. It's an honor to be here with you, brother. Yeah, me too, Jeff. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Yeah, you know, when I first reached out to you guys, I had just finished rewatching the Netflix series uh, for maybe the second time. And I told my wife, she's sitting across from me on the couch, and I said, it would be pretty cool to actually get to talk to these guys, the real ones, because I saw your cameo, you know, at the end <laughs> uh, when you guys are sitting there in the bar with Pedro Pascal. I thought that was pretty neat. And uh, she goes, well, shoot your shot, reach out. And so I did. And that same day, you know, Steve, I got the reply from you and, not gonna lie, I fangirled for a little bit sitting there in my car. Well, thank you. <laughs> but uh, you know, even more interesting was that you know we've got friends in common, so we were really only separated by one degree, which is also you know pretty interesting. But I think you know we were talking a little bit before the show, and a lot of people have, as you say, blown it out of proportion. You know with, you know, the dramatization of all the documentaries and all the TV specials and then the Netflix series Narcos. So I wanted you guys to come on so we could hear it, you know, straight from the horse's mouth, as it were, yeah. uh, how it went down. But before we do, I, I was uh, talking with another friend of yours, another uh, retired DE agent, Ernie Batista. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had sent me a couple of questions that uh, – he figured that the listeners would really enjoy. All right. And don't worry. He didn't throw you under the bus. I was, <laughs> I was checking to see if he would, but he didn't. Okay. Uh, so first off, uh, and I would like to hear from each of you guys, what you, what you think, um, what are the, the qualities that it takes to make a DEA special agent? You want to go first, JP? Uh, go ahead, Steve. Go ahead. Uh, well, first of all, you can't be real smart because they'll send you to places and you just say yes. Okay. So uh, we always tell everybody, we joke around, they didn't hire us because we were real smart. But, um, you know, I guess the most endearing qualities are honesty, integrity, unquestionable integrity. You've got to have that. That's uh, one of those things. It's like your virginity. Once you lost it, you, it's hard to get it back. You can't get it back. Um what really worked for Javier and I, especially during the Escobar investigation, was for whatever reason, we both have a very strong and sound work ethic. So when it came time to get the job done, you did what you had to do. If it was, you know, there initially after Escobar escaped from this prison, we were working 24-7. You were lucky to get to go home and shower and change clothes. And, you know, we were in Medellin and, and uh, living up there and, and uh, conditions weren't the best. You know, you're... Um, at one point we were sharing a bunk room with as many as seven other guys in this little <laughs> really small room and you shared one bathroom with another eight guys <laughs> so no there wasn't any hot water but um it's just it's i tell people especially young people that are interested in joining the dea it's not a job it's an actual lifestyle 
you know, if you're doing your job, you're making your cases, you're, you're a public servant, which is a, a uh, that's a title I'm very proud of that I was able to serve the public for so many years, but it will affect everything you do. It will affect your family. You'll find that the job will come first most of the time before your family. And then you got God to, you know, you're supposed to have God in that equation there. Um, so there's a lot of things that go into consideration, but it, it does take an inordinate amount of dedication. The uh, men and women of DEA now, they make us proud every day for what they're doing out there because they have that same work ethic and dedication. Yeah, and, and yeah, and on the technical side, obviously, you know, with a, uh, you know, what, four-year degree, you know, I've been out of it for a while, but it's uh, your, uh, what, four-year bachelor degree. They're looking for some work experience, preferably law enforcement. It doesn't really have to be law enforcement. And then, uh, you come on, you do a couple of uh, tests, you do, uh, and uh, you know what I tell the, the young people coming on right now, there's there's polygraph involved, and uh, you know, I hate to say it, but guys, you know, I mean, we're a dope agency, right? We're, uh, we go after drugs, so uh, I mean, you'll get a pass with, uh, I don't know, a couple of times, smoking marijuana, what, what is it, four or five times, I think I it think was? So. Right, that, but the harsh drugs. I mean, obviously, yeah. Hey, I just shot up some heroin. Yeah, I mean, you're not gonna, <laughs> you're not gonna make it. But it, it's, it's that. But it's uh, like Steve said. It's, it's. Uh, uh, you just gotta be able to. Uh, you know, it's gonna be a lot of long hours, and uh, your integrity is always at play. And you know, I came on. Uh, my, my. When I came on, I just wanted to do two years because man, I was happy. I was in Laredo, Texas. I was working with the sheriff's office. I was teaching part-time in a college. I was, uh, the college had given me a part, an apartment. I was their head of security. I was on top of the world. So I said, hey, I'm only going to do two years. I want to see what the feds are all like. Hey, you know what? That two years turned into 30 years. So I think I liked it. So hey, uh, 30 years and uh, here we are. Yeah, that's a, that's a lifetime to give to a career. And, yeah. um, yeah, we, we were both, uh, and we were both local officers before we joined DEA. So we've both got almost 38 years each into law enforcement. We really don't know how to do anything else. Well, you did pretty good on your book. Yeah, I'm about halfway through Manhunters right now. Uh, really enjoying that. Um, so Steve, you were talking about how you guys were all bunked up in these small little rooms with eight other guys. Have uh, you and Javier been partners ever since? No. Um, well, we so we just first met in 1991 when I got to to Bogota. Uh, Javier had already been there for three years, you know. So it's it was a great situation for me to come into. But obviously, once we partnered up, there was a, a Javier had another partner, Gary Sheridan, when I first got there, and and Gary and I had some uh, one degree of separation acquaintances in law enforcement in West Virginia. So you know that that's kind of how the friendship started. And then Gary got promoted, moved up to Baron Key. And that's when Javier and I became full-time partners. And after Escobar was dead, we both went our own ways. I ended up in North Carolina. Javier went to San Juan, Puerto Rico. And um, throughout the, the rest of our careers, we would run into each other. We'd talk on the phone. We'd run into each other at conferences. And uh, we both got promoted to the senior executive service ranks of DEA, which is the highest level you can get without a, a, a presidential appointment. So when we'd have those conferences, we'd see each other and, and just kind of stayed friends. But Javier started this speaking business uh, where he was talking to colleges and law enforcement groups um, about the Escobar story. 
and and I saw it and then, you know, we started working together on it. And it, it was only, I don't know, what, once or twice a year, JP, something like that. But uh, when we retired, it, it became a little bit more. And so that's when we really got back into being partners. And then when the show Narcos came out, holy cow, exploded. So this is our fifth year of our, our worldwide tours, what our agent calls it. Uh, of course, this year, 2020 has been horrible because of the pandemic. But prior to this, our first four years, we averaged 75 shows a year. Uh, we've been to Australia, New Zealand twice. We've done two UK tours. We've done Northern European. We've been to Asia, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan. Uh, it's amazing. This is the last thing we ever thought would happen in retirement, you know, that uh, we'd be doing anything like what we're doing now. And and it's just, it's, it's uh, kind of developed into more projects and adventures that we get to go on. So it's, uh, I thought I might be a Walmart greeter or either, either one of the security guards in the federal building. <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to do in retirement. So it's good man upstairs looks out for you. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if I can add, yeah. And uh, what, what we do with our speaking, uh, Jeff, it's we, we tell the actual story, basically the rise and fall of Pablo Escobar. And we tell it from a first time experience where we have. Uh, uh, original photos we got the original videos and uh like you said the, the best thing is you're you're we we tell the actual truth which mm -hmm. is uh, sometimes you know we tell the history the truth of the search of uh pablo escobar and that's what gets uh people's attention you know because there's a lot of false stuff out there there's a lot of you know people you know you know how i have <laughs> false you know so we, we tell the actual truth, you know, so that's what makes our, uh, I guess, our speaking uh, engagements uh, interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, when I was watching the Narcos series for the first time, I'd maybe seen one or two of the documentaries of, on Pablo Escobar. But when I went to go watch the show, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those crime thriller kind of guys. I like them. Uh, and I, I have my phone in my hand while I'm watching it. I'm like, okay, fact check this. Okay. Fact check this. And you see that a lot of it's not really, you know, what, how it's portrayed on screen. And I, I, yeah, it has to be, you know, upgraded or dramatized for entertainment purposes. But uh, Javier, what, what's the dynamic? I mean, you were in Bogota for three years before Steve got there. So what, what's the dynamic like when Steve showed up and you guys had to partner up? of living like day-to-day -day basis with a DEA partner in such, you know, just dangerous circumstances? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Jeff. And yeah, when Steve came in and it was right after Pablo Escobar's escape. And, and if you, just a little bit of, of history, when, uh, when Pablo Escobar surrendered, and uh, like, so he surrendered in uh, what, 92, I think? 91. 91 yeah. and uh we had been after him you know steve had been there yet uh but you know what uh we lost a lot of good police officers a lot of uh uh innocent people civilians you know we had the the terrorism the commercial airline being uh bianca commercial airline that was taken down by pablo escobar we had the presidential candidate uh killed by pablo escobar thousands of police officers. So when, and if we want to get into a little bit here, but when he surrendered, we were not happy, of course, 
you know, when because you know, uh, in, in essence, Pablo Escobar basically uh, dictated his conditions for surrender, which were never, you know, it was unbelievable the conditions. You know, for example, hey, I'm going to build my own prison in uh, Colombia. You cannot come and visit me. Nobody can check up on me. I'm going to take my own prison. I'm going to hire my own prison guards. So I'm going to pay them. I'm going to take my sicarios with me. They can protect me. And uh, like I said, then he negotiated a five-year prison sentence. So how do you think we, we felt, Jeff? I mean, it was like one of those deals where what? This guy has killed thousands of innocent people, personal friends of ours, and then he surrenders. So when he escaped, man, we were elated. That was one of the happiest days in my life because we knew we had another shot. So that's when Steve showed up. So, and, and you know, we told people we were the first ones at the prison after he escaped. And wow, it was something that we had never seen before. It was something that... We knew it was going on, but we really did not have the proof until we set foot in the so-called prison. And I know, Steve, if you want to describe, he does a good job in describing the, the so-called prison. <laughs> oh, it, it was a joke. You know, it was, uh, we've been in prisons all around the world, you know, through our work. And this, <laughs> this was more of a country club than a prison. And, you know, at the beginning, when you first came in, there were two sets of steel bars and to create the facade that, the, yeah, this is a, a place of confinement. But once you got inside, it was wide open. Uh, on the back side of the, of the prison, the perimeter fence, there was just a big hole in the fence. You could come and go as you pleased. There were even steps leading up to it off the soccer field. But then when you got into Pablo's, his jail cell, it was a two-room suite with a private bathroom. So in the, the main room, when you walked in the door, it's a living room and a kitchen combination. He had a side-by-side -side refrigerator freezer. He had a full-size microwave. He had uh, custom-built cabinetry. He had a banana bar that you could set out with bar stools. He had color-coordinated draperies and upholstery, believe it or not. <laughs> you know, which wow. we, we have in our presence. It's called ugly gray. Everything's that real ugly dark gray, you know. <laughs> then you go in the second room, and it's, he's got, it's a combination of bedroom and office. The, the bed is a custom built bed, larger than a king size bed. There's a fireplace in there. Uh, it, you go into the, his private bath and a walk-in closet. He had a jacuzzi tub in his bathroom. You know what we have in our prisons? We call them group showers, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, it was, just, it was just a joke. And the other prisoners, they all had two room suites as well. They didn't have the jacuzzi tub now, you know, so I guess that was kind of roughing it by their standards. But there was a there's a full time uh, bar nightclub type area down there where they throw parties. They had uh, they had hidden rooms where they had weapons stored, they had drugs stored, cash, full size soccer field with lights. You know, my my of my four kids, two of my kids played soccer. We never had lighted fields. You had to play in the day. <laughs> you know, and here he is back in the early '90s with the lighted soccer field. Um, he was building a series of cabanas and chalets on the hillside back outside the prison on that back side where the hole in the fence was so that you know he had a reputation of never sleeping two nights in a row in the same bed because he thought that was a that was a mechanism that would help prevent uh the Colombian police or us from finding him uh, so he might stay in his room he might stay in one of the different chalets or cabanas outside the fence or he might go down and spend the night with his family in the monaco building or he might go to a whorehouse or he just you know this guy, he just came and went as he pleased. It was just a complete and utter joke. You know, there was nothing 
punitive about this environment whatsoever. Yeah, in the the, the prison uh, it, it itself, like you said, uh, he uh, I said that one of the conditions is not even the government could come in and check up on his, you know, like you know. So we always suspected it, but uh, you know, he was still basically running his drug empire right now while being protected by the Colombian government. So what that that's a hell of a deal, ain't it? I mean, you know, nothing see, I'm in prison. I'm not, you know, I can't be uh, running dope. He was, he was still the, his dope organization was still intact. The the distribution network, uh, you know, and uh, they were giving him uh, 50% of all the loads that were coming up. And then he was charging other traffickers, Colombian traffickers, like I said, it, he called it the war tax. Because mm -hmm. they were the ones, he said, I'm the one who fought Colombia. I'm the one who got all these traffickers, a great deal. And the main thing was the extradition. He, he was able to stop Colombia from extraditing Colombian traffickers to the United States. So he imposed, you know, that war tax on other traffickers. So, I mean, look at his business. That's a hell of a business he's got going, right? He's being protected, sending, you know, thousands of kilos, still making money and still uh, living a grand uh, life inside the so-called prison. Yeah, it, it's not hard to imagine how that must have felt for him. You know, if I try to look at it from an empathetic point of view, if I've told the government what they can and can't do and they've obliged and I've built my own prison and I have a nightclub and where I've got soirees going on in this room and that room, I've got girls and dope and cash and jacuzzis. And it, it's not difficult to, if you're imagining it from his side of why he would feel as powerful as he was, you know, he, and why he would not just fully embrace like, yes, I am so, you know, a God, as it were, with the amount of power that he had over just everything there in Colombia. Um, so when, I guess, you know, we can start now into exactly how the real investigation went down. Javi, you were there first. Yeah. Uh, you were there three years before Steve. So I guess we could kick it off from your side. Yeah, and, and, and you mentioned the good point, Jeff. Uh, by living with the Colombian National Police, we were asked, and uh, like I said, we just didn't show up at the front door. We were asked by the Colombian government, hey, can you all help us with uh, with the search? And that's what we moved in. And, uh, and by us, if we hadn't been there, like you said, uh, this is how we were able to, when you're working hand in hand, with, uh, like I said, with our Colombian counterparts, which were great guys, we were able to exchange information on a timely basis. We were there, you know, on search warrants, we would get great information. And you know what a lot of people do not uh, realize is that all this information was being sent back to the United States, to Europe, to other countries. And then we were doing simultaneous operations. In other words, Miami, hey, Pablo Escobar has a has a, an organization based in Miami. It could be money launderers, it could be drug distributors, and so we would investigate them, and we were taking them down in Miami. So that's one of the premises that when we we went after Escobar was you went after the whole organization, 
people in the States, the people in Colombia, he had people in Europe, he had people in Canada. And, and it was, it was to me, it was great because we would take him down in Colombia. They would take him down in the United States. Miami was his uh, forte. Cali Cartel was basically New York. Pablo was uh, pretty much the Miami, the Caribbean. Uh, I mean, you know, so uh, by, by us working with them, by being with them, by going out on operations, it was great because, uh, you know, we were getting at first hand. And then uh, there was a lot of other technical uh, technology type of, I guess, assistance. And uh, so that helped too. But it was a full court press, basically. And all our job was to go after Pablo Escobar and, well, and his organization. We just didn't say, we're going to go after Pablo Escobar. It was, we're going to go after everybody that worked for Pablo Escobar. So this is one of the first time in, I guess, in a narcotic investigation that you were targeting the whole organization. And that's what really was that led to the success, you know, taking down uh, the money launders. And the main main thing was taking down the Sicarios, the assassins. You know, this guy had about 500 assassins working for him. And these assassins were loyal to Pablo Escobar. And uh, so and in, when we first started searching for Escobar, we never realized that the assassins were playing a major role. Because in the United States, I mean, you, you know, it's the drug world so is a violent world, but not like Pablo Escobar had, where the 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 the, the sicarios would would kill whoever Pablo wanted to kill, and they just would not kill one person; they they wipe out the the whole family. So it was something we were not used to. But by us being there, getting the first time, and uh, like, and and we tell people we broke policies, rules. We never broke the law. What I meant by that is we were going on an operations pretty much every day. We were not supposed to, but, you know, we were doing it. And uh, that's what would also gain us a lot of confidence from the Colombian National Police. And uh, we always say they're the heroes, the Colombian National Police, that search block. And we could go on and on about the heroes, but they're the, they're the true heroes. They're the ones who sacrificed, who got their uh, guys killed. So it, it to me, it, it was a great situation. And uh, it was also a very bad situation that we lost some good police officer friends of ours. I, mean, I remember a couple of guys and then the, the innocent people that were getting killed by the terrorism, by the car bombs, by the, the sicarios by being at the wrong place at the wrong time, the car bombs, the famous car bombs we talk about that, you know, 10 to 15 on a daily basis. You know, we say Pablo Escobar killed, what, 10 to 15,000 innocent people. One of his sicarios, a guy by the name of Popeye, says that the figure, and that's coming from the sicario himself, Popeye, claims it was close to 50,000 people. Yeah, I've, I've heard of Popeye. He just died this year, I believe. He did. He died of cancer. Yeah. Now, I had seen a, a special on TV about him, and he was, I guess, doing some kind of uh, amateur movie stunt stuff down there in Columbia. <laughs> Man, he had his own TV show. He had his own book. He had, he had a lot better than we did. His book probably did better than our book. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, was a, I guess crime pays every now and then, but... <laughs> He, still, he had to give up a lot of freedom to have what he had, and 
eh, that's not worth the sacrifice. <laughs> right. One of the sad things I saw about Popeye online, um, I saw photographs. He was, you know, always taking pictures with people and he'd become somewhat of a celebrity down there. And in this, you know, they've got these Escobar tours in Colombia that you can go on, which are kind of dark. But he had he had tattoos on both arms, El Jefe de Mafia, the, the boss of the mafia, you know, and he he would put his arm around, he'd take a picture and he'd hold that arm up so you could read it. Well, the sad thing was I saw t two young Colombian police officers in uniform posing for a photograph with him. And this guy, I don't know how many people, Popeye, he's, he admitted that he killed as many as 300 people himself and arranged as many as 3,000 murders himself. And I'm sure some of those were cops, you know, so it's a shame that, that those young guys didn't know the history of who they were st actually standing there talking to. Yeah. Um, what was it on the Netflix show? Uh, who was supposed to have been the, the big, the biggest Sicario that was there was Popeye based off of the, the character La Kika. Go ahead, JP. Um, no, La Kika was another guy. Yeah. Uh, wow. They, and there's been, uh, Several shows. Uh, Lakika was another assassin. Um, Lakika's got his own, uh, you know, I mean, he was responsible for the famous, uh, the infamous uh, Avianca commercial airline. Um, the Avianca commercial airline, you know, the airplane was going from Bogota to Cali. Pablo Escobar thought the president, the later president, guy by the name of Cesar Gaviria, was going to be on board. He was running for president. And this is all after they killed, Pablo Escobar kills uh, uh, Luis Carlos Galán, who was running for president and was going to get elected president. And his platform was, if I'm elected, I'm bringing back extradition, which is what Pablo Escobar hated. And that's the reason Pablo Escobar had, had him killed because he knew he was going to win and he was going to extradite as many traffickers as he could to the United States. So they had him killed. So now Cesar Gaviria is running for president and he's campaigning and he was going to be flying to Cali, Colombia from, uh, from Bogota. And uh, this is what, 91, uh, the Avianca bombing. And uh, so La Kika coordinates the bombing on the airplane. Then, you know, there was 109 people killed on, on that uh, tragic event. So La Kika was one of the main Sicarios, just like Popeye. Uh, La Kika and his brother were, I guess, uh, they were specializing in that, you know, in killing people. That was their, you know, their, their forte. So La Kika then kept captured in New York City. Uh, about a year later, and Lakika serving a couple of life sentences uh, right now uh, for the uh, actually the bombing of the Avianca airline. Okay, so Steve, from the time you guys, or the, from the time you got to Bogota and met up with Javi, um, is it okay if I call you Javi? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah. Okay, um, from the time that you showed up to Bogota and met with Javi. Uh, how did the situation play out uh, pretty much from there when you arrived to when Pablo was actually taken down? Uh, you guys had first started working together at that point, and I think that's mainly what the listeners are you know, kind of after is the real story of you guys working together to take down Pablo. And, of course, you guys can both cut in through the story. Yeah, it was um, – so I, I actually arrived in Bogota in 
June of 91, three days before Pablo surrendered to go to his custom-built prison. So what I like to brag about is that Pablo heard Murphy's in town. He might as well just give it up, you know, because his time's up. He's going to jail. Of course, that's a joke. <laughs> yeah, but here was the thing that, that kind of surprised me that week. When, when Escobar surrendered, I thought, well, this is a good thing. You know, the, the world's biggest cocaine manufacturer and distributor is in custody. And I thought that was a really good thing. But what I saw from Javier and Gary and everybody else in the embassy that had anything to do with the investigation was disappointment. They were pissed off, you know, and I'm thinking, how is this bad? And and through working with JP and, and uh, Gary, you know, I learned why they were upset because of this ridiculous deal that he negotiated. It's the worst plea bargain in the world. You know, it's it's in the law enforcement culture. It's just a joke. But Put yourself in the shoes of the president of Colombia, Cesar Gaviria. You ran on a platform, you know, that you want to bring peace to your country. And, and can you imagine the pressure on this man, not only from his own political party, but from the opposition party? Hey, we put you in office because you said you were going to bring, uh, you know, a close to the violence. You were going to stop this. So, and it's, and it hasn't stopped. Well, you put Pablo in prison, even as, as ridiculous as those terms were, the truth is for that one year, the bombings actually stopped. So not, I'm not condoning their decision whatsoever. I still don't agree with it, but it gives you, you just got to look at it from both sides of the, of the aisle. You know, you got to, you know, like they say, walk a mile in his shoes. So we try to point that out to the people that we talk to that it's not an easy decision. Um, but as we all know, and especially after he escaped, that Pablo was continuing his drug-related activities. It gave him an opportunity to rebuild his resources, uh, collect money. Um, you know, we know he, he murdered the Moncada and Galliano brothers there in the prison. And, and some of the other books that I'm reading right now, uh, I'm learning that there were a lot more murders committed in the prison that I wasn't aware of uh, that we just simply didn't know about because of the terms that, you know, good guys could not come within two miles of that prison. So... What it did for me that first year, because he was in prison for roughly a year, uh, it gave me an opportunity to get to know Javier and Gary. Uh, they had me, you know, doing a lot of background study because I had worked cases in Miami where, you know, Pablo was the source of the cocaine that we were seizing, but I never had a case that got me up to that level where I could indict him. Now, a lot of the agents in Miami did, uh, you know, and so I had a real good indication of who the guy was, but now you're there. And when I got there, I didn't know I was going to be working with Javier and I didn't know I was going to be assigned to the Escobar investigation. Well, it's kind of cool. First of all, Javier was somewhat of a legend down there. So you get to work with this legend. And second of all, you're going after the world's first narco terrorist, a guy who once he escaped from prison became the world's most wanted criminal. You know, you remember the old show America's most wanted Mm -hmm. flew down and did only one episode of the world's most wanted we took them up to medellin for a week and and filmed and it was, it was kind of strange i don't think they were used to it because we would set up a roadblock there there at the uh, entrance to pablo's ranch and the police told us hey you get 10 minutes and that's all because once word gets out the sicarios the escobar organization will mount an attack against us and then we went into the little town. And it was the same way. It's, you know, and they were strict. They were watching their watches. And, and it was all to get, you know, background footage for the documentary or for the America's Most Wanted. But uh, then once Escobar escaped, and during that first year, Javier, you know, that's when we got to be friends. You know, we got very acquainted. We, you know, quite honestly, we did a lot of partying down there and, and uh, we played a lot of sports together. 
you know, weekends we get together and play softball or football or basketball, whatever it might be. A lot of sports we were done down there. And then when he escaped, then the, you know, what I saw was everybody was elated, not only JP and, and I had kind of gotten on the, the bandwagon by that time, but the Columbia national police were happy. The ambassador was happy because what it did is it gave the good guys a second opportunity to go after Pablo. You know, and, and the very next day, JP and I are heading to Medellin. And then for the next 18 months, we lived up there with the Columbia National Police. And like he told you, you know, we're, we're going out on operations. We're going out on the Huey gunships. We're going out on the uh, unmarked cars doing surveillance and meeting informants. And they set up a 800 number tip line uh, where the United States was offering a $5 million reward. So um, as a younger man, talk about an adventure. It was an adventure of a lifetime, not one that I ever planned to have. And I would never do it again because <laughs> I'm going to be an old man. But I wouldn't trade it for anything, you know, and, and the fact that Javier and I, all these years later, I mean, here we are 29 years later and we're still best of friends and we're still business partners. Uh, it's just a testament of how we got along. And I got to tell you, we're pretty much opposite of each other. You know, it's, I've been married my entire life. It seems like uh, Javier was single back at the time. Uh, I'm a little anal about organization and things like that. It's what keeps me going and, and, Javier's not quite as, as organized as I am, <laughs> but that was the beauty of it. The opposite, you know, the, the old saying opposites attract. I mean, people used to come to us and it's like, you guys have the best partnership in the world, but your exact opposites. How's that work? And we both brought strengths to the table. You know, Javier's got it. Well, he won't tell you this. He's got a brain like an encyclopedia up here. His recall is phenomenal, even all these years later. So it's, it's just a, a partnership that's worked for us. And, and uh, I, you know, God willing, it'll continue on right to the day we die. Yeah. And, and if I can add also, yeah, we're, and like Steve says, uh, he's organized, I'm not organized. I mean, that was one of our our, our strengths. But it, uh, also, if I can touch on that, you know, that uh, 800 number, you know what? Wow, that was one of the best ideas. I don't know, I'm not sure who came up with that. It was a, the Colombian government, the U.S. government, but, you know, I mean, it was the reward was $5 million. So, man, we started getting calls from the Colombians wanting to give information on Pablo Escobar. During the first search, we, we did not have that many informants because people did not want to go up against Pablo Escobar because they knew how violent, how uh, treacherous he was. So nobody wanted to get caught being a snitch against Pablo Escobar. The second time, it's when we started, you know, the floodgates started opening for the five million dollars. That a lot of people wanted wanted that money, right? So one of the kind of interesting facts, and it's kind of funny now, is that when the Collins would come in, and they come into the search block where Steve and I were at. They want to talk to the Gringos. So who are the Gringos? Steve and I, because <laughs> they wanted, they knew that. Yeah, they said, hey, the Americans are gonna pay, so they we only gonna talk to. Them. So we started meeting a lot of informants, going out, and we didn't want them to come into the search block, because we didn't want them to know where it was at. Even though everybody knew where we were located, it was at the police base in Medellin. It was a neighborhood in Manrique. And uh, it was an old police base, and the, there's a neighborhood surrounding it. So, you know, people, the neighbors knew Steve and I. I mean, we'd go out to, once in a while, we'd take a cop. We had a little bar called Candilejas, and it was right outside the base. It's walking distance. We'd go there, get a burger, get a beer, just to unwind. So they all knew us. Uh, 
So, uh, so then this informants, wow, uh, it was kind of interesting. So we figured out, you know what, where are we going to meet them? So we were meeting them at the bus station in Medellin, which at that time was the biggest bus station in Colombia. It was based in Medellin because Medellin is sort of central. Uh, I mean, thousand buses would come in on a daily basis. And, you know, that was their main uh, method of transportation. So we would tell the informants, all right, what are you going to be wearing? We're not telling, you know, because they didn't know us. So we, you know, that way it wasn't a setup against us. So we thought they were always going to try to kill us. Uh, so we would always, and then the police used to help us. Uh, they'd send some people out there to protect us. Then we would meet them and find out if they were credible or not. Anyway, so then afterwards, and it's it's in the book, and it's just part of a part of an accusation that comes in uh, against Steve and I, and, and more on 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 more on me because I was accused in the press of helping a group called those Pepes. And uh, Jeff, if you read the book, you're gonna you're gonna know a guy by the name of Don Berna. Now, yeah. if you see the Netflix story, right, the Netflix show on Don Berna, the actor that plays Don Berna in the real character of Don Berna looked exactly alike. I mean, you can't tell me. I've used pictures of both guys. I mean, Netflix did a great job. That's the real Don Berna, and he was a shady guy. Uh, we did not know at the time, but he was actually the head of Los Pepes, which going back to history, Los Pepes was a right-wing head squad set up of traffickers, and Steve mentioned that it belonged to a guy named Moncada Gallano. These guys were the traffickers that were killed by Pablo Escobar at the prison. They were running his dope. Pablo thought they were stealing from him. They were not. So Pablo's ego that he had, and this is at the prison, he had them killed, and Pablo Escobar killed one of the guys himself, and Carlos killed the other guy. That's what prompted the famous escape. Because once we found out what Pablo Escobar was doing, we convinced the Colombian government, hey, this guy's just killed a couple of guys inside the prison. So the Colombian government says, we're going to move him out. So that's the famous night when they sent the military guys to move Pablo Escobar to prison, the famous shootout, the famous escape. And the next day, Steve and I arrived at the base. So that's what led all of it. All this to say is that Don Berna, later on, who becomes a head of Los Pepes, was the one who was protecting Steve and I. In that, you know, because like I said, the police were busy with operations or Don Berna, you know, and, and Don Berna was working with the search block who had, and he was authorized by the Colombian Attorney General, a guy by the name of the grave, to work with the Colombian Attorney General. So this is, all this to say, everything was on the up and up. You know, we know who Don Berna was, we didn't trust him, but you know, he was the one for providing the security uh, for us not to get killed. After Pablo Escobar gets killed, about a year afterwards is when we find out that the real head of the papers was who? Our acquaintance, Don Berman, who was protecting us. And we explained that, uh, man, in memos and all sorts of things. Uh, we were not involved with those papers, but there's an accusation. And it's basically on me that I was part out there, you know, killing 
uh, those papers were killing anybody associated with Pablo Escobar in revenge for the killing of, of uh, Moncada and Galliano. That's a lot to explain, but I'm trying to, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, the guy was playing both sides and just trying to do whatever he could to benefit himself. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you got, you said you were you and Steve were basically being protected uh, because of his actions, especially from the Sicarios and, uh, you know, other members that might want to come after you guys. Now, you both had hits on you, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Uh, you both were uh, in some situations where you actually had to uh, double down on your security, right? I mean, a lot of people have, you know, been told by someone, you know, I'm going to kill you, but it's never been – you know, hey, I'm going to kill you or Pablo Escobar's coming for you. So from both of you guys, what was what was it like? You know, Steve, you said it was an adventure. <laughs> uh, that's not my idea of an adventure. But I mean, we could go there if you want. Uh, what was that like living in that kind of situation? And all of a sudden, the reality hits that you, they know who you are and there is a hit on you. I mean, what's it like having a hit on you? Hey, this is Nate from Unlimited Live Concepts, and we teach people how cash flow strategy can be just as powerful as investing. Imagine being able to earn interest off of every dollar that flows through your hands, whether you're spending it or saving it. We offer a lifetime membership to our financial education platform for $77, but right now you can use promo code RUGGEDLEGACY and save 50% off. Well, um, you know, Pablo put bounties on police officers down there, a hundred bucks. And that's all he was willing to pay for a man or a woman who were brave enough to put on a police uniform and protect the innocent citizens down there. Their, their life was worth a hundred dollars. I mean, it's just, it's one of the most pathetic things I ever heard. But, and the truth is there was about a thousand police officers were killed down there during the Escobar days. But Pablo found out about Javier and I, um, you know, we were listening to the telephones. We being the Columbia National Police were monitoring a lot of telephones down there. Um, we heard him refer to the two gringos, which was us. We heard him even mention one time the names Pinion Murphy. And, you know, we like to joke around. It's not like that TV show Cheers where everybody knows your name. This is a guy you don't want to know your name. <laughs> right. So he's the guy that, in the he put a bounty on us, $300,000 each. Um, and I think in today's money, that's probably double that value because this was 20, 26 years ago, 27 years ago. Um, when you first find out about that, it is a little bit disconcerting because uh, that's a that's a heck of a lot of money. <laughs> but it's it's like anything else, you know. You you just uh, you can't do your job if you live in fear. You can't even live your life if you're living in fear. So uh, we're not tough guys. We weren't tough guys when we were younger. We were just professional law enforcement officers. We had some additional training from DEA to prepare us when we went down to Columbia and. Uh, most of that was weapons training, to be quite honest with you. Um, but, you know, we we do have, I like to think we have good common sense. Um, the, the, I like to say that the good Lord gave us the ability to think under fire. So, and if you, you're, you're former military, so you'll know what I'm talking about here. When 
somebody's shooting at you, your natural instinct is to run, right? I mean, that's just, it's the fight or flight thing. <clears throat> Most people will, will take flight. But think about this. If you're hiding behind a car and somebody's shooting at you, you have protection, right? If you run, you've just given up that protection. For whatever reason, you know, and, and I give the good Lord credit for all this. He gave us the ability to think under pressure like that and, and to keep yourself safe. You had, you had to be in a position where you could fight back, but uh, for whatever reason, you know, he kept us safe down there the entire time. So God gets the praise and the glory for that. Could we do that today? Probably not. I'd probably run and scream like a little child, to be quite honest with you, <laughs> as I get older. Um, but you just get used to that. It's, it, I don't want to say you get complacent. You're extremely aware of your surroundings 24 uh, seven, except when we were partying and drinking and then you didn't really care. But you know, that was the, you, we were back, usually back in Bogota was a little bit safer at that time. Um, you look at it now and, and we get that question a lot, uh, especially when we're on our speaking tours. I can't explain it other than there was just a supernatural force that, that protected us. And, and, you know, I've already told you what my thoughts are on that. So, um, I don't know why the good Lord kept us alive. Maybe it's because we're talking to you today. I don't know. Thank well, I'll, I'll thank him. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> and how, uh, I read a part in Manhunters where you had just gotten to your apartment and it was like pretty lavish and you enjoy taking some of the ladies up there. <laughs> and, and then all of a sudden you got uh, the phone call. Uh, hey, you need to get the hell out of there. Uh, Pablo yeah. knows your name and he wants you dead. Right. That was, and that was the first time I get to Columbia. This was back in, uh, in 88, you know, it's, I, I'd been there, I don't know, I mean, uh, what, four or five months when I get the call from my boss, a great guy named uh, Bruce Stock. And Bruce was, he had been a veteran of being a DEA in foreign places. So, you know, I trusted him. He was a great guy. He common sense type guy. When I get the call that they were coming uh, for me, that, yeah, I'll never forget that. I'm like, he said, oh, here, just grab your gun, you know, get, get in here. We had Broncos at that time. And your Bronco come into the embassy, kind of calm, but he said, need to get out of there right now. I said, oh, I'll explain later. All right. So, uh, and, and you know, just going back, it was a beautiful apartment. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I came from, uh, I, I did four years in Austin, Texas. I lived in a one bedroom, you know, as we all know, a lot of us did that back then. One bedroom apartment. I think uh, the move-in special was, I don't think it was like, $250 a month. Uh, it is a great place on South Congress. If you know Austin, it's a great party town, great music uh, town. I loved Austin. Anyway, so getting to Columbia, you know, the embassy apartments I got assigned to was like, what? I don't know, it was like 5,000 square foot apartment. The front, and I was on the 18th floor, it was all glass. My living room was all glass. One side was the beautiful mountains of Bogota. And then on the other side was like the city, you know, so the city lights. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, I was single. Hey, I was dating people, you know. I mean, hey, I'm single, right? Uh, and yeah, and everybody would come into that apartment. They're like, what? <laughs> Look at the view you got. I know. I said, I, yeah, I came from a one-bedroom apartment, right? So anyway, uh, so I left and I was just, yeah, I always remember that day. I just like, yeah, I was nervous. Of course I'm nervous. So uh, I go into the embassy and I find out. 
there were some uh, phone intercepts and that mentioned that they were coming for me. So, you know, I had to move. Then I had to move another time also in, in uh, Bogota. But at the beginning, what happened is we had a lot of uh, infiltration. A lot of uh, Pablo Escobar was getting to some of the police officers' families that were from Medellin, and that was our mistake. You know, we were getting, when we created the search block, it was created only against Pablo Escobar. And some of the police officers that were assigned were from Medellin. So Pablo Escobar, you know, I mean, you know, this guy was very smart, very street savvy, got to their families and said, hey, if your kid doesn't tell me they're coming after me, you know what, I'm gonna kill your kid and I'm gonna kill y'all, the family. So police officers started warning Escobar, hey, tell the boss, tell Pablo, they make the phone call. They already had numbers where to call that they were coming, you know, uh, tonight at 8 p.m., we're going to go hit this location. That way, Pablo Escobar was not there. So from there on, and a couple of police officers got in trouble, got, you know, we got uh, got him arrested. Then we, we changed that policy where we only brought in police officers from Bogota or not from Medellin. So we changed that theory that, that helped us. But anyway, getting back, uh, yeah, it's, it's a scary feeling. And uh, like Steve said, we were, we were always scared. And you know what? We want, I, you know, there was times where we would just say, you know what? Let's just let Pablo Escobar surrender again, man. Let's all, we'll all be safe. No more killing. We'll all go home. But then when you would see your police officer friends, you'd see the innocent people get killed. That was just like, hey, we can't give up. There were many times we wanted to give up. Yeah, I can understand how that'd be frustrating. Uh, you want so desperately to catch him, and then he surrenders. You're pissed off at the deal. And then he escapes. You get elated, but that just means the danger comes right back. So it's a bit right. of a double-edged sword. Yeah, it is. It is. A great point. Very good point. Yep. And, and, and like I said, with Pablo Escobar, was, there was always something like you would say, what did he do today? What? What? He blew up an airplane? He killed the president? You know what I'm saying? You would never, you would always say, and I would tell people, what you know what, not even Hollywood would get none of this stuff. <laughs> you know, they can't make this stuff up. It was just something uh, different, you know, uh, every day that Pablo Escobar created. That's what we call him, the inventor of narco-terrorism. Pablo Escobar was the one who created that concept. And uh, like I said, he learned it from, uh, from uh, you know, just, uh, I, I remember that the car bombs, because at that time we had never seen them. I mean, you know, we were seeing, seeing them in other parts of the world, but he brought in, if you know a little bit of the ETA with ETA, some of the, uh, the Sicarios or some of the assassins in they were out of Spain, he brought in a couple of those guys into Colombia. Then he brought in Israeli mercenaries to teach them. So, I mean, you know, it, it was like they were educating their sicarios on, on how to kill people, basically, which we had never seen before. Yeah, I mean, it's not like he couldn't afford it at the time. Right, right. Yeah, he had to, I mean, yeah. You know, he hasn't really touched on his money yet, but Steve, yeah, I know you, you put it best. How much, you know? Yeah, so it's, you know, Forbes magazine rated him as the seventh richest person in the world. And I think it was six years running. I've always been, we've always been curious how they came up with the number, but they estimate his wealth between eight and $30 billion. 
So I saw an email, uh, not an email, but a, a social media post probably a year ago now, and it was rating the 15 richest criminals of all time. Pablo is still number one at that 30 billion. Number two was Chapo Guzman, the, the Mexican who was extradited to the United States at $1 million. So, you know, you look at the money associated with these drug traffickers, and, and I'm sure the Cali cartel has to be in there as well. Um, I don't know what their value was, but you look at the uh, Italian mobs, the mafia, you know, which we all grew up with. That was, you know, the really tough guys up in, especially in New York City and, and Las Vegas. When it comes to money, they can't hold a candle to what these drug traffickers were earning at, you know, in the billions and billions of dollars. I mean, my gosh, we were cops. What's a billion dollars? You know, you don't go into law enforcement for the money. <laughs> I don't even know what that looks like. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, it's just crazy the the amount of wealth. And and you know what? I guess that's the attraction for a lot of people to go into that line of work. Uh, you just got to remember how dangerous it is, and it's what you're you're doing to your fellow man. It's devastating. Yeah, yeah I was gonna say you you put a price on it. I mean, you're you're essentially putting a dollar sign next to someone else's life right. when you decide to go into that line of work. Um, so you and uh, Javi have been working together for a little over a year and it's getting closer to where you guys actually, uh, Javier, you got sent home if yeah. I'm not mistaken because of the uh, incident with uh, Don Berna, right? No, that, that was, you know what? That's a Narcos. Uh, that's a, okay, cool. Maybe you can correct that now. People will know. Artistic uh, licenses, which we learned uh, right away what artistic licensing means. It means they can make up whatever they want. Basically, the, the real story with me was we were in Medellin, Steve and I, and we were getting close to Pablo Escobar because we started intercepting him again on the telephone, talking to his son. So there was about an eight-month period where we were not getting close. And all of a sudden, wow, we're starting to intercept. So we're, we could see our cops are all excited, our group we work with, because we have another chance at, at Pablo Escobar. So I get a call from the ambassador. And the ambassador says, Javier, you need to get on the, you're, you're gonna be getting on the plane. They already have my reservation. You're going to Miami. There's some informant by the name of Navigante. Navigante is kind of famous. Navigante was the informant who was instrumental in the death of Pablo Escobar's main partner, Jose Gonzalo Rodriguez Gacha, El Mexicano, the Mexican. Netflix, Luis Guzman plays the Mexican, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Famous actor, you recognize him from all over the place when you see him. Anyway, <clears throat> and I don't know how these informant, we had taken him to Miami after the Gacha because he was the one who really you know, had Gacha killed. So he was hiding out, but he calls the ambassador and says, hey, and I work with him in the first search. He says, I'm only going to talk to Javier, and I'm going to tell him I know what Pablo Escobar is, but I'm only going to tell Javier. And so the ambassador calls me and says, you need to get on a plane because Navigante only is going to trust trust you to give you the information. I said, ambassador, Navigante is wrong because Navigante was saying uh, Pablo was in uh Haiti, yeah, Haiti, if I'm not mistaken. He said, Ambassador, Mr. Ambassador, all due respect. And the ambassador's like like presidents, right, of a country. They're our boss. They're a big boss. And I said, sir, with all due respect, we have lo located Escobar. We're close to him. He's like, I don't care. You get on a plane or I'm kicking you out of the country. And they can do that. So 
I got on a plane. And it's funny, you know, what when I get to uh, Miami, you know, I get picked up and he's in the hiding place. So I go, and Navigantes on the phone, right? On the phone, he puts the phone down to Javier. He just killed Pablo Escobar. I said, oh, shit. So, but I, <laughs> so I got a, I got a, on a night flight coming back to uh, Colombia, but I'm glad Steve was there. So I'll let Steve, uh, you know, talk about it. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the moment that everybody really wants to hear about is to be one of the guys standing over Pablo Escobar at the end of the day when it's all said and done. Well, and first of all, just to set the record straight, in, in the narco show, it shows that I was on the roof when Pablo was killed. That's Hollywood. That's not true. I was back at the base, um, and I was, you know, it's it's this is common knowledge now, and and pretty much everything we did down there has been declassified, so we can talk openly about this. You know, our ambassador brought in the U.S. Army's Delta Force, and they brought in the U.S. Navy SEAL Team Six to work with us for eighteen months. And we love those guys. I mean, there's, you know, we've stayed in touch with a lot of the guys, uh, still friends to this day. Those guys are like the studs of the world, man. I mean, they're like big muscles with, with a brain and legs and they're walking around like, who do you want me to kill? What do you want me to break? You know? But, <laughs> and, and I say that with adoration because, you know, we make no secret about it. If, if Javier and I are ever kidnapped, that's who I want to come and get me. Cause I've seen what these guys are capable of. They are unbelievable. I mean, they're the best of the best that I've ever seen in my life. So I'm certainly not putting anybody down. Um, but I was standing in the room there talking to them on the day that Pablo was killed and it was in the afternoon and just catching up, you know, quite honestly, it was nice to have another American to talk to a little bit after 18 months up there. And, um, and I saw the executive staff for the Colonel, Colonel Uva Martinez, kind of scurrying over to his office and we were, you know, it was in the quad area out there. And so I told the the other gringos, I'm like, Hey guys, something's going on. I'll, I'll go check it out and get back to you. Well, Javier and I had such a good working relationship with Colonel Martinez, you know, out of respect, you'd go to his door and stand there and maybe knock. And, and he saw, I mean, he's motioned for me to come on in and he's got his Lieutenant colonels and some majors standing around. And then one of them whispered to me, Hey, they think they've located Pablo. Well, you know, we've heard this story before, but this time was different. You could see the excitement starting to build in the room and you could hear Colonel Martinez telling uh, the person that found Pablo happens to be Lieutenant Hugo Martinez, who was Pablo, who was Colonel Martinez's son. He had trained himself on how to use this radio directional finding equipment because the telephone systems back during them were not what we enjoy today, the 5G. You know, it was basically radio telephones is what it was to operate off of radio frequencies. So the colonel was telling his son, listen, uh, you know, help's on the way, secure the site. We're loading up the search block, uh, but don't let him get away. Well, now the search block consisted of 600 police officers. You can't load them up in two minutes and hit the road, right? <laughs> you got to call everybody up. They got to get the uniforms on. They got to issue weapons. They got to get assignments. They got to have a little roll call to make sure they got everybody, get all the trucks and the Jeeps and everything out. So it takes several minutes to, to make that happen. Well, in the meantime, there was a, a specialized unit of Colombian police officers that Javier and I prim we primarily worked with. They were called DIJIN, D-I-J-I-N was, was the acronym. These were the plainclothes action guys. I mean, these were, the, these were the special operators for the Colombian National Police. And they were out there supporting Lieutenant Martinez. Uh, so they got there and they're, now the Lieutenant saw Pablo looking out the window talking on the phone, looking out the window. So we've got visual confirmation, that's Pablo. So these guys didn't want to take a chance on, on Escobar getting away again because it had happened quite 
a number of times. So they sent a couple guys around back. They uh, uh, decided to make a hit on the place. Now this is a three-story row house. They saw Pablo on the second floor window looking out. They blow the door off the front. When they come inside, it's like a combination kitchen and garage, believe it or not. There was a taxi cab parked in front of the counter at the kitchen. Uh, it's, I've never seen anything like that. <laughs> and so they searched that first floor. They start making their way up to the second floor. And we went back and listened to the tapes afterwards. And when the door was open, you know, you could hear Pablo saying something like, hey, there's something going on here. I got, I've got to call you back. And, it, and the call disconnects. Well, he realizes what's, you know, there's an attack imminent on him. So he starts making his way up to the third floor as the as the Columbia National Police get up to that second floor, you know, they see him going up and one of our buddies, and I, I can't remember his name now, it's been too long ago, he was getting ready to advance up the steps and he tripped, which saved his life because Pablo fired a round at him from one of his handguns. And when the police officer fell on the steps, the round went over top of his head. That's the only thing that saved his life that day. Man, that's luck. <laughs> and here's, you're not kidding, that's somebody looking out for you there. Now, what was very unique about this situation is Pablo at one time had as many as 500 Sicarios protecting him. On December 2nd, 1993, he was down to one, a guy whose nickname was Limon, Lemon. So they got up to the third floor. Now behind them was a two-story row house. So it was a one-story drop onto the roof of the house behind him. And all these houses are connected. So Limon jumps out the, the window onto the roof of the house behind him makes his way over to the edge where he's going to climb down and the police on the backside order him to stop. Well, he opens up with his gun, they shoot him. He falls off the, the roof dead. Pablo's still up there. You know, he's ready to come out that third floor. He went third floor window. He knows the good guys are coming up behind him. Now he knows there's cops on the backside because he heard the gunfire, right? So he goes in and jumps out that window onto the, on the roof down there and he's trying to make his way along the wall which protects him from the view of the guys behind the place looking up. But the window he jumped out of has a commanding view and you've got the high ground to shoot down, you know, on him and he realizes it. So he's, he makes a run, he's barefoot. He's, he's trying to run across these clay tile roof uh, house. And that's when the, the guys get to the third, the good guys get to that third floor window, order him to drop his guns. He turns around, he empties, he's got two nine millimeters. Uh, when I got there, both clips were empty. He'd over, uh, he had emptied both weapons shooting at the cops. They caught him in a crossfire. Now, he was hit three times. He was hit once in the back of the leg, once in the butt cheek, which these are knockdown shots. Neither one of them are fatal shots. But then the, the kill shot was around right through the right ear. Um, I, I don't even remember what caliber is, either 9mm or two twenty-three. There's There's different opinions on how all this happened. So that's what killed Pablo Escobar that day. Now I'm back in the office with Colonel Martinez and the radio has been quiet because the gun battle is ongoing, you know? Uh, and all of a sudden this, one of the majors for the Dehean unit comes up and, and says the, you know, the, the famous quote, uh, Viva Colombia, we just killed Pablo Escobar. So that's when the back slapping started, the high fives, you know, uh, Colonel Martinez has already got the troops being assembled. I need to run back over to the gringos, let them know what's happening, call the embassy and let our boss know. So I get on the phone and I call the embassy. I can't get anybody to answer the phone. I finally called our admin office in DEA. Uh, one of the admin officers answered the phone. I said, get Mr. Toff on the phone. He was our boss. It took, it seemed like days before he got on the phone, <laughs> you know, cause I'm <laughs> going to get out there and go. 
And uh, he picks up the phone. He says, Steve, they just killed Pablo Escobar. And I'm thinking, well, no shit. That's why I'm calling you to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a testament to the relationship that our boss had with the Colombian National Police. Because when the head of the Colombian National Police found out about it, the first person he called was our boss. You know, so that was the respect between the DEA and the Colombian National Police down there. Um, and I, so I finally talked to Toff and he says, okay, your mission now is to get out there and confirm that's Pablo Escobar because we had been down this road before, you know, where it was imposters or misidentified, whatever it might be. Um, so I run back to the, to the bunk room and I'm grabbing my gear and cameras and everything. And I come running out and the entire search block is gone. The only people there are the guards on the gate and the admin staff. And I'm thinking, and the other gringos, I'm thinking, oh, you know, how, how am I going to get out there? And, and uh, lo and behold, here comes a single Jeep driving back up with Colonel Martinez. He wanted to get his video camera. So he sees me over there and, and I'm telling him, hey, Colonel, I need a ride. He's a stick. They, they call me stick instead of Steve because they, they couldn't say it correctly. And so that was my- <laughs> He's like, Steve, get in the car. Let's go. So I rode out to the site after Escobar is dead. And, and we make a point of that. And I'll tell you why here in just a second. We get out there, uh, turns out my camera is the, my 35 millimeter is the only camera that worked there that day until the autopsy people got there. And that's how, that's how Javier and I have all the photographs that we use in our show. I, we took the pictures, we owned the photographs. Um, and you know what, there was no doubt it was Pablo. You could tell uh, from his physical appearance, it was who he was, but here was the telltale sign. His mother and his sister showed up out there. Now I'm up on the roof, this second floor roof, looking down, and people were just coming out of the woodwork. It was like ants. There were thousands of people gathering. The Colombian military showed up. You know, we've got 600 Colombian police officers out there trying to control the situation. And the sister finally, she's saying, "I want to see my brother." You know, you said you killed my brother. I want to see. So she goes over, kind of elbows her way in, to where the bodyguards land on the ground, and she sees it's not Pablo. And she's just going off on the place. Oh, once again, you've killed an innocent person. This is not Pablo Escobar. You're the most inept police officers in the world. And she's just venting on them. And finally, they let her have her say. And when she shut up, they said, hey, go take a look up on the roof. She climbed up there. And when she saw her brother, her reaction, that's what, you know, after that, there was no doubt in my mind whatsoever. That was the real Pablo Escobar, Escobar that had been killed that day. Now, the reason we make a big point out of saying that, you know, we weren't there and Javier has already said it is because we want the world to know who the true heroes are from that day. And it's the Colombian National Police because they took their country back from this piece of crap. The world's first narco terrorist. Give me a break. Yeah. Colonel Hugo Martinez is the one, like I said, uh, and his son, Lieutenant Hugo Martinez, are the true, true heroes in all of this in the police of the search block for the Columbia National Police. That is correct, Steve. And that is a heck of a story either way. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, again, I, I see why Netflix did what they did with the artistic licenses, you know, and uh, making it, you know, so entertaining. But at the end of the day, you know, this isn't a DEA success story. This is a Columbia DEA America world success story because not just people in Colombia, not just people in America were affected by the the terror that Pablo Escobar, you know, wreaked out on Colombia. 
you know, there were people in all of the countries that have had anything to do with the, the South American drug trade with drugs coming in and all of the agencies that you guys mentioned that you worked with before. Um, everybody had a hand in it. And it, it's just a victory for the planet at that point. Everybody benefited from this guy dying. Yeah. You know what? It really was. And, and I mean, we get credit for things that we did that we thought made common sense, such as we vetted some of the police officers we were working with. And by that, I mean, we did background checks on them. Uh, some of them we did polygraph checks on. And, and when they pass all that, that really raises the trust factor. Um, so the other thing, the other big thing was we went after the entire organization. You know, we just didn't cut the head of the snake off on this one. We chopped that snake up into little bitty pieces. And so they took, then there's a few other things that we did that I don't, I don't know, just <laughs> to me and Javier, it just made sense to do the things that we did. And so they took the things that we learned from the, from the Escobar investigation and they employed these against the Cali cartel. And so the DEA was able to take down the Cali cartel and then the North Valley cartel stepped up took them down and then Don Burnock stepped up as the biggest cocaine trafficker, took him down. And it, it's, you know, it's nice to be remembered as, as, you know, you guys, it's amazing the compliments you get. It's very humbling, but it just boils down to using your head and using good common sense. I, I don't have no other way to explain what we did down there. Yeah, you know, people, People love a hero story, though. That's what it is. And, you know, you hear it all the time with, uh, I can't quite remember the, O'Neill, uh, the man who shot bin Laden. You know, everybody loves a hero story. Every, you know, they, they talk about the the guys in the, I think it was the Task Force 121 that took, that found Saddam in the spider hole. You know, everybody loves a hero story. And, I think that's part of what makes this country great. I think it's part of what makes us as a species great is we always have that that mythological figure or figures kind of off in the distance casting their silhouette, you know, as the heroes that possess these virtues that we aspire to. Well, it's, yeah. you know, we've been called a lot of names in our careers. <laughs> Most of them I would repeat here on your podcast. <laughs> Not good names, but uh, being a hero, somebody calls you a hero that's that's a pretty cool name to be called but you know we don't aspire to that we don't claim that title at all we were just two professional law enforcement officers doing our job and, and you know what when that case was over we tied after after escobar was dead we spent several months tying up loose ends and then we just simply moved on to our next cases i went to north carolina and javier went to puerto rico um, it was funny because some people knew that we were involved in the case and what our activities were and some didn't and it's not like you show up in a new office and say, hey, I killed Pablo Escobar yesterday. What'd you do? <laughs> you don't go around bragging about your doing what you're supposed to do, what you get paid to do. Um, and it's this just another day with, at the office. Well, this thing with narcos, holy cow, we never expected anything like this. It was, uh, we actually turned them down when they first called us to do the narco show. Eric Newman's the creator and the executive producer and uh, we turned him down because we tried something with a couple other producers and they just want to take our story and they had personal agendas, political statements they want to make, things like that. And we're not about that kind of stuff. Um, and then after we met Eric and a couple of the writers, you know, we, we realized we might have something here. 
but even when we we would go out to Hollywood and spend weeks at a time talking in the writers' room, telling them stories and all that, and uh, we kept telling Eric, you, you guys, and we didn't know it was Netflix to start with till after we signed our contracts, and that's when they told us it was Netflix. Uh, we told him, you're just wasting your money. Nobody cares about this story. It's been too long ago and shows you how little we know about Hollywood because it's one of the most popular shows that Netflix has ever produced. I mean, they're still making World War II movies. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't think this story is going to get old at all. Uh, and, and Javier, I noticed that uh, they cast you in the season three of going after the Kali cartel, but that never happened. That's when you went to... Uh, Puerto Rico, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I went to Puerto Rico. Then I came back. Uh, I got uh, promoted as the number two guy. So I went back to Colombia in 1999. So I was involved, not, you know, a little bit with the Cali cartel search. I was the, one of the big bosses there. But oh, there okay. some artistic licenses that, yeah, I wasn't, you know, but. Yeah, I, I did go back, and uh, my second time I only did two years because I started getting attacked in the press of being Los Pepes. Oh, it was terrible. So even though it was not true, but no, I, yeah, I did go back. Okay. You know, this has probably been one of the best episodes I've ever recorded on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank and I think the highlight out of this entire story is the way you guys say it, you know, it's just another day at the office. You don't show up to your next assignment and talk about what you did on the previous one, even though it was national news worthy, you know, world news worthy. Right. You know, no one, no one's, you guys didn't want that pat on the back because you were just doing it because that's what you had to do. That's what, that was your job. Right. And I don't think I can offer any higher respect than I already have for you guys and guys in law enforcement who at the end of the day, they're not doing it for laurels or plaudits or accolades. At the end of the day, they're doing it because that's their job and that's what they have to do. Yep. Thank you. Look, it, it sounds corny and cliche to say it, but the vast, vast majority of law enforcement officers, as, as well as military, do what they do because they have a sense of um, wanting to help their fellow man, that we're proud of our country, you know, and we want to do what we can and, and not, I'm not trying to get on my high horse here. There's that old saying, find a job you like, you'll never work a day in your life. Javier and I feel like we found that job. Neither one of us look forward to retirement. You know, federal law enforcement retirement age is 57, mandatory. Uh, at our ranks, we were both special agents in charge. We were offered a three-year extension, which you could go to age 60, and we both accepted. But that was before we found out about the the narco show coming along and and you know, I mean, I had to do something because I had two daughters in college at the time. <laughs> I had to have a job somewhere. Uh, so that's that's how it all worked out. Uh, thank you for the, the nice words you said to us. That's, that's very complimentary of you. We really appreciate it. But um, just, you know, we just want the world to know the true story. Yeah. And Jeff, yeah, thank you. And uh, again, one more time, the Columbia National Police. I'll always admire Colonel Hugo Martinez. He got promoted to a general and he recently passed uh, about six months ago, had a heart attack. Uh, so they're, they're the true heroes of Colombia. Yeah. And Pablo Escobar, Jeff, you said it best. I mean, this was a world-type phenomena because it affected not only people in Colombia, the United States, Europe, Canada. I mean, this guy had tentacles all over the world. Yeah. I guess... 
the only thing I, I want to ask you guys now is you look back at everything you've done uh, in the DEA throughout your law enforcement careers, you know, whether, you know, prior to the DEA, what, what would you consider be the most rewarding experience of your entire careers? And do you have any regrets at all? I, I don't have any regrets. Um, uh, and the most rewarding, you know, this was pretty good because taking out Escobar, we felt like, you know, we probably helped save some lives in Colombia and other parts of the world, you know, so, you, you know, you kind of have in the back of your mind that maybe you did something good. Um, but for me personally, my wife and I, we've been married for, uh, ever <laughs> seems like <laughs> something years i know how that feels and uh we our two daughters we adopted from colombia one is from just outside of bogota and the others from medellin uh they were both babies they were infants when we got them monica was eight months old mandy was five five months old when we got them they're now in their mid-20s and mandy's married has her own child and uh for me that's you know that's one of the biggest accomplishments that i'm proud of um, is that we were able to uh, be blessed to have these two little girls in our family. I have two sons also uh, from my first marriage. Uh, so I guess for me, that's the biggest thing. Uh, being in law enforcement was a blast. I mean, there were, there were challenges and there were downtimes, you know, there, especially when you see your, your buddies being injured or killed. Um, but, I, man, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I just loved it. Yeah, not me either. No, no regrets. It was... And, you know, when you look back at all of this, it's, you know what, we're still here. And uh, like I said, you know, I, you know, one of the first, and his name was Captain Pedro Rojas, and we sent him out on a mission. He was killed by Pablo Escobar. I mean, I, I feel some of the stuff where uh, people died, innocent people in this uh, whole uh, search. So I always feel for them and, uh, I wish, you know, maybe we should have caught him earlier. That was not in our, you know, it didn't happen that way. So we uh, just got to live with that. But no regrets. It's been a great career. And uh, we, uh, that's why we like talking about the real, the real story. You know, look at, I mean, we, we would have probably never got to meet you if it wasn't for this. So got to meet you today. <laughs> hey, I appreciate meeting you guys. Uh, our pleasure. I'm, I'm definitely going to be promoting your speaking tour, your book. Uh, I will let you both know uh, uh, if uh, there's anything that I can do to help promote what you guys do. Uh, I'll let you guys know when I'm having other media platforms come up. Okay. So we'll definitely stay on it that way. But this has been an absolute honor and a privilege to talk to you guys. You. And as I mentioned in my email when I first reached out, uh, I really appreciate everything you guys have done for this country, for others, uh, putting your lives on the line, putting your family on the line, because a lot of cops end up having to lose their families because it's a choice between that or the job. And sometimes the duty is, the, the call to duty is sometimes too strong to hold on to both. Mm -hmm. And so I really appreciate the sacrifices you've both made. And I appreciate you guys taking the time to come on the show. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jeff. We appreciate it too, buddy. Anything yep. we can do for you. Yeah.
Same here. Thank you very much, Steph. Keep doing what you're doing, too. You're doing a phenomenal job here. Thank you, guys. I appreciate that. And for all you listeners, there are show link. There are links in the show notes where you can find uh, the link to purchase uh, Manhunters, how we took down Pablo Escobar. Uh, that link will be inside the DEANarcos.com link. Uh, that way you guys can get autographed books from Steve and Javier Bose. But that's going to do it for this episode of the Rugged Legacy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I appreciate everything you guys do as far as promoting the show and helping it be as successful as it is. Thanks for listening to the Rugged Legacy Podcast. And remember, everyone wants to rise from the ashes, but very few are willing to set themselves on fire.